0: Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We are continuing this sermon series where we're walking through the second half of the book of Exodus. And last week, Pastor Marcus was visiting with us from the Hampton, Hampton campus and did a wonderful job showing us about God's design for Israel's worship under the Old Covenant in the tabernacle. But this week, we're going to see that pure design for worship, God's ideal that this people would come and worship him, gone tragically wrong. You see, the people had made vows of obedience and faithfulness to the covenant, and they are already going to break those vows in a tragic way. So this morning, we are going to talk about idolatry. And so, personally, I've got to hurry up and preach on idolatry so I can get home and cheer on my idol. Um, just kidding, by the way. Just, just that was a joke. Uh, but what exactly is idolatry? You know, because when you and I think about idolatry, when we hear that word, when we read about idols in the Bible, this is what we usually assume. We think idolatry were these silly, naive, ancient people who didn't know any better, so they would bow down to these statues. But we, us sophisticated, modern Westerners, we know better than that. We would never worship idols. Let me suggest to you that idolatry is both the most common and the most pervasive sin in the world today, and I'm including us. I'm including America. What exactly is idolatry? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher, one of my favorites, defined an idol this way. He says, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life. Anything that seems to me essential. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention my time, and my money. So in other words, an idol is what Tim Keller would call a counterfeit God. It is something that takes the place of God in my heart and my mind. It could be anything that takes the place of God in my heart and life. And idolatry is the fundamental sin that is underneath every other sin. The reason why we disobey God, the reason why we do bad things is because there is something else in that moment that is more important to me than the glory of God. There's something else that I want more than God. That's idolatry. So this morning, as we look into Exodus 32 and this account of Israel worshiping the golden calf, I believe that we are going to see the most graphic display of idolatry in all of the Bible. My hope this morning is that we would first of all see both the danger and the ugliness and the disastrous impact of idolatry, and that as we see that, we would shudder with horror and that we would run to the Lord in repentance, ready to smash the idols in our lives and to come to Christ. So that's the, that's the bad news that I hope we see. But the good news that I hope we see is that our God has provided a mediator to stand in the gap for us so that we would not receive the punishment that we deserve, but that we could be forgiven and we could be set free from the bondage of idolatry. So let me give you the main point of my message this morning. Idolatry is the sin of replacing the creator with creation. And because of our idolatry, we need a mediator. So let's start reading this text together in verse 1, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, "'Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him.' So Aaron said to them, "'Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me.' So all the people took the rings of gold off that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Father, as we've just read from your word, we're reminded of the ugliness of sin. Lord, our our hearts are—we read this passage and we recoil thinking, how could they do this? But Lord, then I'm reminded of my own life. And the Holy Spirit says, how can you do that, Nate? Lord, how often do we look to other things, things in this world to give us what only you can? Lord, how often do we go to the broken cisterns of this world instead of you, the fountain of living water? Lord, I pray that this morning would be a morning of repentance for us, a morning where your Holy Spirit reveals to us the idols in our hearts, that you would give us the courage to turn away from them and to come running to you. Lord, help us to do that. Open up our hearts. Open up our eyes this morning that we would worship you more faithfully in every dimension of our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first scene in this narrative is about the idolatry of the people, it describes the idolatry of the people of Israel. So remember, where is Moses? Moses is on top of the mountain. He was there for 40 days, and he's receiving instructions from the Lord on how to build the tabernacle. And while he's gone, things are not going well on the ground. So you might remember that he left Aaron in charge. Aaron is his brother, he's the high priest of Israel, so he should be trustworthy. And Moses leaves him in charge. And the people gang up on Aaron, and they say, Come on, we don't know where this guy Moses went. So we want you to make gods for us who will lead us. So what does Aaron do? He collects the gold from the people. He says, give me all of your earrings, all your jewelry. And he forms it into the image of a calf. And he says to them, these are, well, the people then say, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You know, they had just received the Ten Commandments, like, a few weeks earlier. Right? They had just received the Ten Commandments. Does anybody remember what the first two of those ten were? You shall have, first of all, you shall have no other gods before me. That's command number one in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. What about command number two? You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is on the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. They had broken both of these. They'd broken both. They were seeking to replace the true God with other quote-unquote gods. And the worst part, maybe, is that they are giving them the credit that God deserved. They're giving them God's glory. These gods are the ones that brought us out of Egypt, they've said. But Aaron comes in, and I think Aaron is trying to baptize the situation. Here's what I mean by that. They say, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And what does Aaron say in verse 5? He said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. It's a feast to Yahweh. I think Aaron is trying to justify the situation by saying, yeah, this is bad, but at least we're worshiping God. You're still breaking the second commandment. So the next day, they offer sacrifices to the golden calf. And the text says, They sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you want Nate's translation? They feasted and they partied. That's what that means. They feasted and they partied. Guys, this whole situation teaches us about the utter foolishness of idolatry. Let's place this in the perspective of the whole story of Exodus. These are the same people who, within the last few months, they had witnessed all 10 plagues coming on Egypt. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground as the water is split before them. They had seen rain come, uh, bread come raining down from heaven and water come gushing out of a rock to provide for them. They had heard the very voice of God thundering from Mount Sinai, giving them his law. And just a few weeks earlier, they entered into this covenant by saying, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. Now they're so quickly abandoning God. They entered into this covenant with him, and just a few weeks later, they're breaking it. They're like a husband who would cheat on his wife on their honeymoon. They are so quickly deserting God. And for what? For a calf, that's what. For a calf. Now, why a calf? I've read a lot of commentators. There's a lot of speculation about why a calf. But the most convincing explanation to me is that there were Egyptian deities that were in the form of calves. So I think that this is what they knew. In the absence of Moses, they were going back to what was comfortable for them. The false worship of where they came from. But I want you to think about just how foolish this is. Bible trivia time. Does anybody remember what the fifth plague on Egypt was? Anybody? What did God do in the fifth plague? He killed all the livestock. He killed all the cows. So they're worshiping something that the real God had just killed. Think about how foolish this is. And even worse, they said, that cow brought us out of Egypt, even though we just made him. Now, You can go back and read Exodus 14, the Red Sea account, if you want to. I've read it a lot. I haven't seen any cows. Maybe I'm missing it. But I haven't seen any cows in that story. Of course, this is utter foolishness. They're pointing at this idol and saying, you brought us out of Egypt. You know, Kevin DeYoung, a great preacher, when he was preaching on this text, this is what he said here. You think this cow brought you out of Egypt? Bull. (laughs) So, all right, just so you know, I had in my original notes about three cow puns. Uh, I workshopped them with Megan during the week. She got me down to just one. So that's all you got. All right, if you want more cow puns, you got to ask me later. I don't want to milk it. So, um, (laughs) all right, that's two. So how is God going to respond to all of this? Well, that's what we're about to see with the intercession of Moses. We're going to see the intercession of Moses, this dialogue now between Moses and God. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, let me alone and let my wrath burn hot against them that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So while Moses and the Lord are on top of the mountain, the Lord breaks the news to Moses. He said, the people have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly from the commands that I gave them. And notice some of the language that God uses here. He says to Moses, your people whom you brought up from Egypt. It's kind of like when my kids are being bad, and my wife's like, go get your kids. That's kind of what I'm imagining here. Moses, this is your people. So God indicts Israel because of their sin, and then ultimately he concludes by saying this to Moses. He says, therefore, let me alone. In other words, get out of the way, that my wrath may burn hot and I can wipe them out and make a great nation of you. God is threatening to do away with Israel and to start over with Moses. You know, how is Moses going to respond to this? Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord and said, "'O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people?' whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses here, he pleads with God. He intercedes on behalf of the people. And what is he asking for? He's asking God to relent from the judgment that he had just threatened to bring on this people. And Moses, I want you to see this, he grounds his intercession in two fundamental realities about God. First of all, he grounds it in the glory of God. Moses reminds God that his glory is at stake. He's saying, Lord, what will the Egyptians say that you brought us out here just to kill us? Your reputation is at stake, Lord. But then he grounds it in the promises of God. Moses reminds God, remember the promises that you made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises to bring this people into this land. He knows that God is faithful to his word. And so he prays on that basis. And God responds in verse 14. It says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's park here for a moment. We need to chat about verse 14. There's a lot of theological weight in the verse that we just read. And I wanna make sure we've got a clearer understanding here. What does it mean that God relented? This is a fascinating word in the Old Testament. It can refer to having compassion for someone. It can refer to repenting of something. It can refer to changing your mind. And so, on the basis of this text, there are some who have argued that God changes his mind. In fact, there is a view called open theism that personally I would regard as a false teaching that teaches that God does not know the future and that God is learning as time goes on. And according to this view, God makes decisions in time without knowing the future. So as God does things, he is taking risks. He feels regret over his mistakes. He feels disappointment. So given that, how are we to understand this passage and other passages like this that talk about God as relenting or repenting or feeling regret? Let me give you two thoughts here. First of all, there's a really important principle of studying the Bible that I want us to apply this morning. And here's it. here it is. We use clearer passages of Scripture to help us understand less clear passages of Scripture. We use the clear passage to help us interpret the unclear passage. And there are so many very clear passages of Scripture that teach us that God does not change, that God is unchanging. The big theological word here is immutability, that God is immutable, He is unchanging. For example, 1 Samuel 15, 29, it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. That's the exact same Hebrew word as in our text. Regret and relent, same word. It says explicitly in 1 Samuel, God says, I don't do that. I don't regret. And even more to the point is Malachi 3, 6. God says, for I, the Lord, do not What? Change. I don't change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God's character is unchanging. God's purposes and plans are unchanging. Think about it. God knows everything, He has always known everything. He is eternal and He is omniscient. An, omnip- an omniscient God does not learn anything because He's always known everything perfectly. And so how can an omniscient God change his mind? So where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? I believe that God's plans are unchanging. However, they are also unfolding in the course of time. Let us say that again. God's plans are unchanging, but they are also progressively unfolding in the course of time. And I believe it was always God's plan to relent of the disaster that he had threatened in response to Moses as the mediator. That's the key to this passage. It's not that Moses changed God's mind, he twisted God's arm and convinced him to do something else than he already wanted to do. It's that God wanted Moses to intercede for the people and then save them on that basis to teach them and also to teach us that God saves sinful people through mediators. That's what we learn in this text. God threatened judgment, and then he relented of the judgment that he threatened because of their mediator. And I think that was always a part of God's unchanging plan. So enough theology lesson for today. Let's now continue in the story because Moses is getting ready to head down the mountain and see the situation for himself. And in verse 15, we're going to see the judgment of God the judgment of God. Look at verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Yum. So he comes down the mountain. He's got the Ten Commandments in hand, tablets that were written by the finger of God. And he meets up with Joshua, his assistant, on the way. And as they're on the way down the mountain, they can hear this raucous, wild party from far away. And Joshua, who's a military guy, goes, oh man, I think there's a battle going on. But Moses knows better. He said, no, dude, this is drunken singing. This is a wild party going on. When Moses sees the idol, And he sees their dancing. Moses is so furious that he destroys this idol. He grinds it into powder and he throws it in their water supply. So much for their God. But remember, who's the ringleader here? It's Aaron. Aaron. It's his brother. It's the high priest, the one that Moses left in charge. And so now Moses is going to confront Aaron. And how's Aaron going to respond? Look at verse 21. Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you? I love how he starts. He's like, there's no way. Like, they must have held you hostage or something. What did they do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know this people, that they are set on evil? For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and it's crazy, Moses, you won't believe this. I just took the gold. I didn't didn't know any better. I just threw it in the fire, and poof, out came this calf. It's crazy. You know, God has a sense of humor. Like, he put this in the Bible, and it's funny. Anyway, side note. Moses said to Aaron, like, what could they have possibly done to you to make you do this? And instead of taking responsibility and confessing, Aaron plays the blame game. First of all, he said, Moses, you know how difficult these people are. I mean, you get it. You know how difficult they are. And then he said, besides, we just took the gold and we threw it in the fire, and poof, this calf came out. It sounds like something my toddler would say when I asked her why she hadn't cleaned up her room yet. (laughs) This is pathetic, and it's childish. And let me be hard on Aaron for a moment, because I think we learned something here. Aaron is an example here of what poor leadership looks like. This is what poor leadership looks like. Instead of leading with conviction and with courage, he compromises. He caves into the sinful desires of the people. And why did he do it? I believe because his fear of man was greater than his fear of God. He cared more about what the people thought and what the people wanted than what God thought and what God wanted. And let that be a warning to me and you, that when we face pressure from other people, let's be resolved to always obey God, regardless of what consequences might come to us. So let's continue now in verse 25. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies— And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. So Moses, he sees that they have broken loose. Another way to translate that would be that they're out of control. And when he sees this, he's got to retain order. And God is going to judge the people. We've got to understand this. In the ancient world, Pagan worship often descended into wild partying, complete with gluttony, with drunkenness, and with all kinds of sexual sin. And when you compare this with 1 Corinthians 10, a text in the New Testament that refers to the golden calf incident, I think that's exactly what's being implied here. That there's all kinds of immorality going on. And so Moses sends the Levites to carry out God's judgment. And let this be a warning to you and me. There are a lot of people in our day that are very uncomfortable talking about this concept of the judgment of God. But we've got to be real here that the God of the Bible takes sin seriously and he will judge sin. So we've walked through this story and now we're coming to the aftermath. We're coming to the conclusion of this story. How does it end? Verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, "'You have sinned a great sin. "'Now I will go up to the Lord. "'Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin.'" So Moses returned to the Lord and said, "'Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. "'They have made for themselves gods of gold. "'But now, if you will forgive their sin, "'but if not, please blot me out of your book "'that you have written.'" But the Lord said to Moses, "'Whoever has sinned against me, "'I will blot out of my book.'" But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Last verse of this chapter, verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. And then they all lived happily ever after the end. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Not a happy ending, is it? Moses acknowledges they've committed a great sin, and yet he's still willing to intercede on behalf of the people. And notice what he says to the Lord. He doesn't minimize what's happened. He doesn't try to justify what they've done. But out of his love, he said, Lord, will you blot me out of your book? What book is he talking about? I think he's talking about the book of life that's referenced in other places in Scripture, God's book that contains the names of all of those that will inherit eternal life. In other words, I think Moses is basically saying here, Lord, let me die for them. Let me take the punishment for them. Let me be condemned instead of them. And though that is a noble request, God essentially says, Moses, you can't do that. You can't do that. But God will still keep his promise and bring them into the land And the story ends in verse 35 with a plague on the people. Now, here's a bit of irony for us. How did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Plagues. And now he's sending a plague on Israel. It's almost as if God is saying, if you're going to act like Egypt, I'm going to treat you like them. So that's how this story ends. Now that we've walked through it, for the rest of the time that we have together this morning, I want to give you two main applications from this text. Two ways that we can apply the teaching of this text to our lives today. And the first is very simple. Destroy your idols. Don't flirt with them. Don't nurture them. Don't look longingly at them. Destroy your idols. Now, I highly doubt that anyone in this room has struggled with the temptation to bow down to a golden cow. If you have, our prayer team will be up here after the service. We have a great biblical counseling department here at Coastal. I'd love to refer you. Uh, but in all seriousness, you know, actually, um, so in our kids' ministry, they've been going through the Bible, and they studied the golden calf story uh, several weeks or a month ago. And I remember driving home from church with Hannah, and Hannah said, Daddy, we don't worship the golden cow said, you got it, babe. Thank you for the reminder. Uh, That's what I needed to hear. But here's the deal. Like I already mentioned, when we think about idolatry as arrogant modern Westerners, we think it's just these idiots bowing down to statues. That's what idolatry is. But I want to put that in context. We need to understand they didn't actually think the statue was the God. The statue was the image of the God. It was the representation of the God. It was not the God itself. And why did they worship other gods? Why was Israel throughout the Old Testament constantly tempted to worship Baal and Asherah and Molech and all of these other gods from the nations around them? Because in that culture, they believed that worshiping these false gods would bring about rain for their crops, it would bring fertility for their wives, it would bring protection from their enemies, and it would bring a fun party at the worship services. In other words, they worshiped these gods because they believed that they would provide protection, provision, security, pleasure, and meaning. Now does that make more sense to you? Now does that sound a lot more familiar? Because we don't use um, idols, physical idols, statues to get those things in our lives. We use careers, We use relationships. We use hobbies. We use political ideologies. We use whatever else it might be in order to get those things that we most want. An idol is anything that you look to for your ultimate sense of meaning, protection, provision, pleasure, and security other than God. And sometimes an idol in your life, it becomes an idol when you look to it to give you what only God can. And there are two dimensions of idolatry that we see in this text and that we see in our lives. I'd like to look at both of them. The first is worshiping false gods. Worshiping false gods. The people were seeking to worship other gods. They said to Aaron, plural language, make us gods. They did that because in their hearts, the God who had brought them out of Egypt was no longer enough for them. They needed more. My friends, idolatry happens in our lives when we start believing that God is not enough for us. But we need something else. We need someone else to satisfy our souls. But here's the problem with that. When you get rid of the only creator, the only other option are things in creation. And so what we end up doing is rejecting the creator of all and substituting him with things that he has made. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. This is the fundamental aspect of sin, of the human condition. Romans 1.21, "'For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools.'" And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And why? Because they exchanged. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. That's the best word we can use to describe an idol. It's an exchange. It is exchanging the true God for things in creation. It is putting something in creation on the throne of my heart, giving it the affection and the attention and the service that only God is worthy of. I want to show you a few things about idols, some characteristics of idols. First of all, idols are useless. They're absolutely useless. They don't do anything for us. They make big promises and they can't back them up. They promise fulfillment, joy, meaning, peace, and security, but they're useless. I mean, think about it. How powerful was the golden calf? How powerful was the golden calf? Moses turned their God into a beverage, ground it down, made him drink it, Likewise, the idols in our lives, they don't do anything for us except make us miserable. But second, idols control us. Man, when something becomes an idol in our life, it demands absolute obedience. It consumes all of our attention. I've heard it said before that a great way to tell if something is an idol in your life is that you're willing to sin to get it or sin because you're afraid of losing it. It's the thing you feel like you can't live without. Think about it. Why does someone become a workaholic? Because they've made their career and their sense of success, their status at work, into an idol. That means more to them than their relationship with the Lord and more to them with their relationship with family. We could go on and on and on. Idols become idols to us and they consume our lives. And they take the place that only God should have. But here's perhaps the most sinister thing of all. Idols can be Anything idols can be anything. John Calvin famously said that the human heart is an idol-making factory. We often assume that idols are inherently, there's something bad, there's something sinful that we make into an idol, but that's not necessarily the case. It can be, but often, and perhaps more often, we take good things, God's good gifts, and we put them in God's place, and they become an idol that way. I've heard it said before, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a bad thing. That's what we do. Whether it be a relationship, marriage, parenting, whether it be a career, our work, our job, whether it be a a particular hobby that we do, whether it be a political ideology or a political person, whatever it might be, there's so many things. We are so good at making idols. We have this inherent sense that we need to be worshiping something or someone. But in our sin, we turn away from the true God and we worship things in creation. And so, this is what we need to honestly ask ourselves this morning. Is there anything in my life that is more important to me than God? What do I think about more than anything else? What do I desire more than anything else? What do I feel like I could not live without Is it the creator, or is it something in creation? I have been praying all morning that at this point in the sermon, the Holy Spirit would do what I can't, which is to reveal in your heart, in your mind, what's really on the throne of your heart this morning. To reveal to you, man, what has been getting most of my attention and my affection? Is it Christ, or is it something in this world? My prayer is that the Lord would shine a spotlight on those things so that we can put God back on the throne of our heart, so that he can be number one. But there's another dimension of idolatry that we see in this story, and it's worshiping God falsely. You see, idolatry is both worshiping false gods, but it's also worshiping the one and only true God in a false way. It's the difference between the first commandment and the second commandment. The first commandment has to do with substituting God for other gods. The second commandment has to do with worshiping the true God falsely. Remember Aaron, he tried to baptize the situation by saying, actually guys, it's a feast for Yahweh. Yay, we're worshiping the true God. But here's the deal, it doesn't matter. They were still breaking God's command. And I want to emphasize this. It really doesn't matter how sincere Aaron might have been or how sincere the others might have been. Again, Kevin DeYoung said in his sermon on this text, sincerity is not the measure of truth. And I say that because there are many in our day that would say, it really doesn't matter how we worship God as long as we're sincere, as long as our heart's in the right place. I hope you know how wrong that is. The God of the Bible gets to define how he is to be worshipped. He reveals himself to us. We don't have the freedom to make it up. Let me give you two thoughts on this. You know, it's been said many times before that in the beginning, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. We've been trying to make God look as much like us as possible. And I think that's what the golden calf was. It was a domesticated God. It was an attempt to make a God that was just like them to cater to their wishes, R.C. Sproul put it this way about the golden calf. He said, The cow had no law and no demands for obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun and call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless for men. Now here's my fear. My fear is that that cow sounds very familiar. And that many in our culture call the God of the Bible God, but what they're really talking about is a perfect version of their self, a powerful being that exists to give us what we want. A God whose main attribute is not holiness, but tolerance. A God that would never judge sin, but just wants us all to have a good time. He exists to make our lives more comfortable but if he ever doesn't give us what we want, we'll dump him. Can I be crystal clear with you this morning? A God without wrath, a God without holiness, a God that makes no demands for obedience is not the God of the Bible. It is a modern day golden calf. Our God is holy and he reveals himself to us and let us repent of trying to make God in our image, but instead worship the God who is there's one other thought I want to give you here. This also applies to how we worship the true God. How we worship the true God. Our worship must always be in accordance with God's word. Our worship must be by the book. We don't have the freedom to make it up. At Coastal, why do you think it is that we do the same thing every week? That we preach the word, that we pray, that we sing praise, that we give, that we serve. Why do we do these things? It's not because we're clever. Because the Bible told us to. Because that's how God would like to be worshipped. God gets to tell us how God is to be worshipped. But maybe you've heard it said before. Maybe you've said it before. I mean, that's great. You guys do the church thing. That's fine. But you know, for me, I feel more connected to God when I'm fishing. I feel more connected to God when I'm going on a nice walk in the woods. And hey, that's great. Like I love nature too. But here's the deal. And I say this with love. Our feelings are not the standard of what worship is. God's word is the standard of what worship is. And here's the deal. Worship does not exist to give us a spiritual high, to give us fuzzy feelings. And I hope that happens. Worship exists to glorify God. It's not about us at all. It's about God. And it is nothing short of idolatry to worship God in a way that he has not called us to. We must worship God in the way that he has prescribed so that he might be glorified. You know, I've got one last point this morning that I want to leave you with. I understand this has been a heavy, heavy sermon. It's been weighty. If you came in wanting to be encouraged this morning, we'll come back next week. Just kidding. I want to leave you— No, well, I didn't mean it that way. It'll be, it'll be great. Um, so, I hope. I want to leave you with a little bit of hope. I want to leave you with a little bit of hope because there are some glimmers of gospel hope even in Exodus 32, even in one of the darkest chapters of the Bible. And this is our last takeaway. Trust your mediator. Trust your mediator. Worship and prayer team can go ahead and come on up. Trust your mediator. One key theme that we learn in this story, and we're going to see it again next week, is that God works through mediators. Moses was the mediator who stood between the people and God in the old covenant. And when they sinned, Moses stood in the gap. God relented of sending the wrath that they deserved because Moses interceded for them. And at the end of the story, I love this, Moses was even willing to be condemned in the place of the people. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Because you and I are just like these Israelites. That's who I hope we identify with in the story because we're just like them. We're a sinful people. We're a stiff-necked people. We're a rebellious people. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We have worshiped gods of our own making instead of worshiping the one true God. And we deserve God's judgment. But praise be to God that he has given us a mediator. That in the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. As it says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is what Philip Ryken says about this story, and I love this quote. It is as if God said, Go down, Jesus. Go down. Go down because your people, the ones that I gave you from all eternity, have become corrupt. They are living in sin. They have turned away from my law to worship other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. And Jesus did come down. He said, save them, Father. Save my people. Because they are not just my people. They are also your people. The ones that you love with a father's heart. Save them because I died on the cross for their sins and we should not waste my precious divine blood. Save them because it will bring glory to your name. Save them because you delight to show mercy. Save them because you promised to save them in the covenant we made before the world began. So Jesus came down. He came down from heaven. And think about this. Moses offered to be condemned in the place of his people. And God basically brushed Moses off. He said, you can't do that. Let me suggest to you why God said that now. I think because Moses couldn't do that. Moses couldn't die for this people. He couldn't pay for their sins because there was another mediator that was coming. And Jesus didn't just offer to be condemned in our place. He really was condemned in our place. He really was blotted out of God's book so that you and I could be written in on the cross. Jesus died paying the price for sin on the cross so that we could be forgiven. And three days later, he rose from the grave, victorious over Satan's sin and death so that now all who turn from their idols and come running to Jesus will have forgiveness and eternal life and will be brought into God's family. That's the gospel. And so let me leave you with one final appeal this morning. Trust your mediator. Church, trust your mediator. The one who stands in the gap. Jesus is the true and better Moses who bore the wrath that we deserved so that idolaters like you and me could be transformed into sons and daughters. So may the Holy Spirit reveal to us what the idols are in our lives that have taken our affections away from Christ. May we repent of our idolatry and let us this morning find a renewed delight in satisfaction and trust in Christ alone, our mediator. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you do the work that I can't? Would you take this truth and drill it down deep into our hearts? Would you convict us of the things that have received more of our attention and affection than Christ? And would you cause us to come running into the arms of our Father this morning, knowing that his arms are open wide? Oh, Lord, how much you love us, how much you care for us, how eager you are for us to come running to you. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts and in our lives this morning. We love you and we praise you, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.